welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Bonnie Christian, a journalist, author, and fellow at Defense Priorities. Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start by asking you about U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. She's the highest ranking official to go there for 25 years or something. Um, but there's probably some important context we need before we get to your analysis. This wasn't merely a first shot. There was a, a big lead up. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, so she she sort of floated the idea a couple weeks ago, um, suggesting she might go there while touring Asia. And then as she started on her trip, it was not initially included in her itinerary. So there was a lot of debate of will she or won't she. And while that was going on, we learned uh, that the the Biden administration opposed her going. Um, President Biden said, you know, the military doesn't think this is a good idea right now and you know, publicly spoke against it. We've since learned that privately behind the scenes, administration officials were advising her against going. Um, and China, of course, publicly was uh, vociferously condemning the idea, um, you know, talking about how their military would not sit idly by if she came and and casting it generally as a, a threat to their sovereignty if, if she went to Taiwan, which, of course, they claim control over, even though in practice it, that, that control doesn't really exist. Yeah, I mean, the context is important. We can't go through the whole history. It's a very long history with with Taiwan. But, I mean, you know, for 40 years or so, we've had agreements promising not to try to alter the status quo. There have been crises since sort of Eisenhower. Um, in the post-Cold War period, Clinton and Bush had, had crises and kind of faced down moments over Taiwan. I think Trump's first act in office, or actually rather as president-elect, was to take a congratulatory phone call from the Taiwanese leader. And then, you know, the Taiwanese, uh, the, the Taiwan Travel Act in, of 2018, Congress passed this thing which explicitly authorized high-level U.S.-Taiwanese meetings, which was not an insignificant change, uh, which is a pretty clear message from Washington, D.C., that we're no longer going to kind of exercise the restraint and respect for China's territorial sensitivities that, that we once did. Um, and I believe there were some uh, previous uh, delegations of U.S. senators and so on that went. So this was a kind of long ratchet. What has the fallout been uh, since she's visited? What has China's reactions been? Yeah, well, it's it's a little bit difficult to say, um, you know, to, to wholly place the, the blame on Pelosi's trip and say they did this because she came. However, it seems pretty clear that a lot of what they're doing is is certainly strongly connected, even if that's not the only reason. Um, so one thing, for example, is the the Taiwanese government reported that Chinese warplanes were flying into not not directly over the island, I believe, but into the airspace that they consider, um, you know, sort of their their zone. Um, that is something that that Chinese warplanes do with some regularity. So it wasn't, you know, again, it wasn't a, a wholly new thing because of Pelosi's visit, but they sent a larger contingent of planes than they normally do. So it, it you know, it's hard to say there's, there's, this isn't a reaction. Um, the, there have also been some economic consequences. Uh, Beijing has slapped some new sanctions on Taiwan. They've banned some imports, I believe, mostly of baked goods from Taiwan and, then the biggest thing, of course, is these live fire uh, military exercises that began uh, it would, today, Thursday, um, local time, uh, which some of them are quite close to uh, the Taiwanese uh, beaches. Um, I believe the, the closest one is within about 10 miles um, off the shore. 
and they have not done drills like this uh, for nearly 30 years since like, I believe it's 1995, 1996 is the last time that uh, the Chinese military got so close with these, these live fire exercises. So there were, there was a lot of pushback. She got pushback from the president of her own party. She got pushed back diplomatically. Some U.S. allies in the in the region, Australia, Japan, didn't really appreciate this, um, and they kind of viewed it as a as at the very least a snub, and at the very worst, sort of uh, unnecessarily causing instability. And it became kind of politicized, and people started taking sides. Uh, it became about standing up for democracy or the credibility of U.S. commitments and all sorts of things. So, what do you think actually prompted her? to do this? Why go for Pelosi? Yeah, it's hard to say. She, she published that op-ed in the Washington Post um, this week, which very much leaned into the, you know, we're defending democracy arguments um, to the point that her, her closing line very nearly committed the United States to fighting for any democracy anywhere. Um, it, it just went very hard in the, this is about democracy direction. Um, but, you know, you, you could do that on the phone. So it's, it's hard to, to really credit that as a serious reason for why she went. I think, and, and this sounds cynical, but I think the most likely reason is that, you know, she's nearing retirement. She's expected to lose the speakership in November. It's sort of something of a, a last hurrah, perhaps, where she does have this long record of, of critiquing and, and rightly critiquing the Chinese government. Um, and so, you know, I think she wanted to continue in that vein. And, um, you know, I don't think it was prudent for her to go. I think it's sort of strange that she went in defiance, as you said, of a president of her own party. Um, certainly she has, a, I guess, a right to go. Congress is a co-equal branch. Um, but yeah, it, it seems to me uh, arguably self-serving more than anything else. So a lot of the experts, I think, predicted that this would cause a lot of instability and kind of tick China off, uh, to, to put it technically. Um, did we gain anything? I mean, has any part of the situation improved? Is there any kind of benefit to U.S. interests at all? I don't really think so. Um, to my mind, it, it was a lot of risk, not really any reward. Um, I, I have seen some commentators saying, well, you know, China is, is accidentally doing us a favor by doing these live fire exercises. They're sort of giving us a preview of what their strategy would be if they were to try to invade Taiwan. Um, maybe that's true. I, I don't really feel qualified to judge um, that question. But outside that possibility, no, it, it seems to me that compared to last week, Taiwan is under more economic sanctions and hardship. Um, and things are less stable and less secure than they were before. What about the implications of doing this, you know, kind of poking Beijing in the eye about one of its most sensitive and vital national interests, while we're also intervening in the near abroad of another major power, Russia, over a territory and over stakes that Russia sees as vital in, in, in Ukraine? Yeah, there's there's been so much talk in recent years about pivoting from, you know, trying to sort of control the whole Middle East and war on terror stuff to great power conflict. And there's a way in which that is sensible in that what we were doing in the Middle East was not good, was not, uh, you know, helpful to us, was not helpful to them. Um, and, you know, we do have, particularly in China, a rising great power, and we should be paying attention to that. But there's a difference between, I think, pivoting to pay attention to that and and winding down wars in the Middle East as compared to actively courting 
like open conflict with with China and Russia as well, um, particularly as you mentioned over things that they view as core to their national interest um, and that are are just objectively not core to our national interest. You know, I mean, I do not want Ukraine to be invaded by Russia. I don't want Taiwan to be invaded by China. Um, but the United States is not imperiled if that happens. You know, we are not any less secure right now um, in terms of th this is not an existential threat to us that there's this war in Ukraine. And in the same way, it wouldn't be an existential threat to us that if there was war in Taiwan and it would be tragic, it would be wrong. Um, but it, it, it's not an existential threat to us. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's deeply unwise for us to be uh, provocative towards what are objectively, especially in China's case, um, maybe not quite peers, but certainly the closest thing we have to military peers on the planet and, and you know, nuclear nations with whom, um, you know, sort of like the unthinkable civilization ending war could happen. So we're still seeing the consequences of, of Pelosi's Taiwan visit unfold. We don't know what will follow. But with respect to the war in Ukraine, you've written recently that Biden was right to pledge with a clarity too often lacking in his policy toward Ukraine that the United States will not be directly engaged in this conflict. Can you talk a bit about the tension between his pledge and his policy? Yeah, so he he's very much framed his policy about, you know, if they if they do not attack us, if they being Russia, if Russia does not attack us, if they do not attack our allies, we are not going to go to war with them. Um, and that's, you know, that's a good thing. I think that's exactly the the promise he should be making. Um, but in practice, it's it's not a bright line, right? Like the things that we are doing in Ukraine at this point, the way that we are supplying weapons, the way that we are supplying advice and intelligence. Um, there were those two leaked stories to the New York Times um, from anonymous U.S. officials about how we helped kill some Russian generals and we helped sink um, the Russian warship. Uh, you know, these are arguably, we are already involved in that war against Russia. Um, certainly, I think we would see the, those acts as as acts of war, certainly very warlike acts if, if we were on the receiving end. Um, and so, you know, he drew this bright line rhetorically, which is a good thing. And I, I would rather have that statement than not, but in practice, uh, it has not been as bright as it is in his rhetoric. What do you think uh, Moscow's objectives are in this war, and are those achievable aims? Yeah. So the the big recent news and and the sort of the what prompted that article that you quoted from was the statement from their foreign minister uh, Sergey Lavrov that they are he, he openly. Um, stated that that what Russia intends to do in in Ukraine is regime change, um, and from at the at the beginning of the war they were explicitly denying that they were saying you know that's that's not our plan. We're not trying to occupy Ukraine. We're not trying to um, you know take away their statehood or overthrow the government. And now they they've Moscow has said yes that's that's what we're doing. Whether it's achievable, it's so hard to say. I mean, at the beginning everyone expected a much quicker war than this. thought Russia would just sort of roll through, um, given the comparative size of the their, their military, and obviously that hasn't proven to be the case. Um, so whether they are capable of, you know, ousting the Zelensky government, um, taking Kiev, I don't know. I, I guess I, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised either way. 
Um, but the, the question with regime change is always what comes next. And this is a question that the United States has, has of course, learned <laughs> at great cost over the past two decades. Um, you know, just because you can throw out the old government doesn't mean that you can successfully make a new one, doesn't mean that you can keep the new one going, doesn't mean that you'll ever get buy-in from the local population. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I think the goal is not realistic, um, particularly given the the response among the Ukrainian public to the invasion. I don't, you know, maybe they maybe they do take Kiev. I don't really see them ever having a a, a compliant um, population that supports the new regime. Yeah, and I imagine Moscow knows that, and maybe some of its rhetoric has exceeded its actual war aims. But even if it's just to kind of break up the country's eastern territory to Russian control or de facto Russian control. His point will have been made. He sees it, I think, on uh, Ukraine's potential future inclusion into NATO, which, of course, we've been teasing uh, for a long time. Um, how do you see the Biden administration's policy on this going forward? Is it just going to continue to support at l somewhat low levels? Or uh, are there escalatory risks? Yeah, that that's difficult to say. I I mean, we have, it, it was in May, if I recall correctly, May or June, that they started sending um, these HIMARS and, 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 you know, sort of upping the level of support that, that we've provided uh, in terms of weaponry. And recently, and uh, I don't remember if it was in direct response to the Lavrov comments about regime change or just sort of coincidental, um, there's... I've seen some renewed pushes to provide uh, Ukraine with with jets, fighter jets, um, with planes. I don't believe we've done planes so far. Not planes that we would fly ourselves by the U.S. military, but but to to sell or give planes to them. Um, so I I think that sort of escalation seems very plausible. We're we're upping the the sort of level of weaponry that we're providing. Um, there, there's also been pushes for, for more, you know, intelligence sharing, or even for like a, an advise and assist mission, the sort of thing that we do a lot in um, North Africa, elsewhere in the Middle East, um, where we're sending in American uh, officers or, or sort of like elite uh, groups of American troops to to train and and offer more direct guidance. Now, given those those leaks again to the Times about helping sink the ship and kill the generals we're clearly doing some advising already um but that was supposed to be secret so a a more open um and large scale advise and assist mission i think would be an escalation and is not doesn't seem inconceivable but but at some point you know i think even the biden administration would have to recognize how blurry that that line of we're not going to get directly involved would become um and so yeah, it's hard to say exactly where they'll decide we have to stop here. Just to zoom out again and go back to that earlier point about kind of taking on both China and Russia at the same time and um, uh, refusing to withdraw from the Middle East and, and, and so on. Um, I wonder if you have anything to say about the, I think still somewhat um, understated, but if not predictable, uh, thing where there's this remarkable consistency between uh, the foreign policies of Trump and Biden. Uh, there's a difference in presentation and in rhetoric. Um, but just like with Bush and Obama, the continuities are pretty substantial. 
Um, do you have anything to say about that? Such not just the two parties, but at a, at a time of incredible partisanship and kind of division, and the distinction between the two candidates is certainly very wide. Why not their foreign policy? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I don't know if it's possible to pinpoint a single a single reason. A great deal of it, I suspect, is inertia, institutional inertia, um, just the 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 difficulty of getting out of these long term, uh, you know, projects and commitments that we have, and and just the the simple matter of fear. You know, I think we we particularly in the Middle East and anything to do with the war on terror in the aftermath of the nine eleven attacks, we got we really bought into that uh, the mindset of that that George W. Bush phrase was so well known about, you know, we have to fight them over there so we don't fight them over here. Um, it's this sense of if we stop doing this that we've done for so long, won't it get worse? Like, won't we have another 9-11? Can we really give these things up? And, you know, people say it'll be okay, but can we take that risk? Um, I think that's a lot of it. Um, beyond that, you know, I mean, the, the, the Pentagon is a huge uh, organization. There's a, a lot of moving pieces here. It's, it's very hard to to undo huge government bureaucracies and programs once they're in place. Um, and we've we've all sort of become accustomed to this baseline level of uh, bases overseas and military interventions that sort of teeter on the edge of are they or are they not wars? Um, and this idea that it is the right and natural thing to have the United States. Um, sort of militarily dominate the planet and have a global sphere of influence, not just something regional. And those are those are very strong assumptions. They're assumptions on on both sides of the aisle, and they create conditions where um, it, it it sort of just becomes uh, unthinkable to to significantly depart from that, even if you're laying layering on top quite different rhetoric and and in some cases meaningful differences. You know, I think things about like. Uh, rules for civilian casualties. Like that is a significant difference. And, you know, I don't want to gloss over that. Um, but in terms of like the, the big picture, you're right. It doesn't change very much. And I think we are at the national level, not even very good at talking about uh, what is a, a markedly different way that we could do this. Uh, we've discussed issues of executive power, presidential power on this show before, particularly in the domain of foreign and national security policy. Uh, this is something you've written recently about as well, um, especially with respect to national emergency declarations. You wrote, uh, if you'll excuse me, quote, emergency declarations have become a lazy political workaround, a way for presidents to bypass Congress after it fails to do its job or in some cases outright rejects what the president wants. National emergencies have become a loophole to administrative lawlessness, and they are in dire need of reform. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so um, national emergencies as we know them now uh, come from the National Emergencies Act of 1976. And the way it's designed, it's supposed to be a way for the president to act under situations of true emergency where Congress does not have time to meet and take a vote, you know, perhaps even in scenarios where we've got members of Congress shuttled off to different safe locations or something like they can't gather together. Um, and so then it has a, a time limit and says, you know, after I believe it's six months, if I recall correctly, Congress has to approve the thing the president did under the national emergency. But the idea is like when things are are really crazy, there's just no time. 
the federal government is not hamstrung by the inability to get Congress together. The way it has worked in practice, though, is that it it frequently concerns things that are not true emergencies. Um, Presidents use it to expand their powers when Congress has had plenty of time to act. Uh, and they they often use it for things that that are you know don't even really concern the the United States. It's it's not national in that sense. Um, so in that article, two examples I used is we have ongoing national emergencies that have been in place since the George W. Bush administration. Uh, Biden reacted them in the last year or two, and they're both about sanctioning people who are meddling in democracy, democratic processes in Zimbabwe and Belarus. Like these are not. They're they're just not national emergencies for the United States. Like they're bad. They're they're not our national emergencies. Congress could have done something if they wanted to. Um, they were not under any constraints. And so I think in recent years there's been a little bit more attention to the misuse of national emergencies because Donald Trump wanted to declare a national emergency to get funds for his border wall after Congress had explicitly declined to provide that funding. And then most recently we saw uh, there was a report that President Biden was considering the same thing uh, around climate change because the the Senate was not reaching a deal um, on climate change legislation. And, and in both cases, they explicitly phrased it as if Congress doesn't do the thing I want, I'm going to, to have to declare a national emergency. And, and that very phrasing reveals that the conditions for declaring a national emergency haven't been met. Um, but because the law is, I guess, written loosely enough and the, the, that six-month time limit for Congress to sign off on things is quite long, presidents are able to do this and get away with it and, and just sort of take lawmaking powers into their own hands. These specific kinds of, of declarations are really a reflection of a broader problem with the expansion of executive power over time, and most importantly for the show, um, war powers in particular. We still have authorizations for the use of military force, for example, to pursue um, terrorists or alleged terrorists abroad. Uh, it's not really constrained by any borders or uh, um, anything else, really, uh, time limits. Um, do you want to say anything about executive war power specifically and how that continues to characterize the U.S. war on terror, as we've just seen with the recent Zawahiri killing? Yeah. So, you know, the the post-9-11 authorizations for use of military force for Afghanistan and Iraq are the two uh, that have been, I think, most abused in terms of there's just no limits of, of chronology or, or geography. And so the, the Afghanistan one in particular has been used to uh, to go after groups that are not in Afghanistan and that formed after the 9-11 attacks happened. So they, they can't be responsible for these attacks because they didn't exist at the time. So Congress doesn't repeal these. They don't, uh, they don't pass new ones. They just sort of let them be stretched beyond all reasonable understanding of the the authorization as was as it was originally written um, and you end up with these these sort of blanket permission for the president to order uh, airstrikes or even boots on the ground really just about anywhere because once the the interpretation of, of an authorization for use of military force has been stretched so much, at a certain point, it, it just becomes, um, you know, a, a carte blanche for whatever they're inclined to do. And that's what we've seen in, in recent years, um, such that we have 
again, it's it's hard to know, should we call it a war? But we have certainly like, you know, military interventions, warlike activities in, in so many countries. It's, it's the, the bulk of the countries in Africa um, and, and small presences still in a lot of the Middle East, even though we've wound down combat missions. You know, it's a bit ironic because uh, I think it's clear if you know a little bit about American history that the the constitutional provision providing Congress with the ability to determine the nation's hostilities in, in war was to prevent exactly this kind of problem. They were trying to set up um, checks and balances and uh, sort of use the incentive structures against each uh, of each branch of government against each other. But the problem is both branches, um, the, the legislative and executive, are very supportive of this expansive view of executive power and war power in particular. So, you know, no presidential candidate seems to want to run their campaign on a message of, I'm going to reduce the power of the office that I'm seeking. That's a very <laughs> odd thing. We wouldn't hear that. But then there are many examples where the president, for one reason or another, wants to take a more cautious approach, maybe a more diplomatic approach. And Congress kind of bullies uh, and forces the issue to a much more rightward, hawkish, confrontational turn. So uh, the checks and balances are kind of broken there, no? Yeah, I mean, if you go back and look at the, we have diaries, I believe, from, uh, I want to say John Adams or, or Madison, on you know the deliberations while they were working on the the Constitution, and they they really got into it over exactly what phrasing should be used when crafting the war powers. And it's clear from the discussion, the notes in the discussion, that their goal was to slow the rush to war, to make it more difficult to declare war, um, and then you know not require Congress to be involved to end a war. You know, the president should just be able to to leave if he thinks it's done. They wanted to be, make it hard to start and easy to leave. And in, what we have now is very much the other way around, where it's it's very easy for the president to to claim authorization under one of these never-repealed AUMFs, and then uh, we just sort of never go home. Um, or if we even if we do end combat operations, as we did in Iraq, there's like still some very hard-to-find number of U.S. forces there. Um, Afghanistan is sort of like the the rare exception at this point where it was a complete exit. But again, as with this recent strike, like we are still to some degree involved there. And I, I don't really see under what circumstance that would end for the foreseeable future because Congress certainly isn't going to say you've got to stop getting involved. Not so much for ending on a hopeful note. Uh, Bonnie <laughs> Christian, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. 